When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. Bellerín, otro defensor, otro disparo, Monreal, gol. Marca el futbolista español, marca Nacho Monreal. Pim, pam, pum. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. Goodly morning, James. Goodly morning, indeed. Yes, um, we should point out that there is some building work going on in the background there, so any noises, hammering, drilling, uh, angle grinding, what have you, um, there's not much we can do about that. No, there's nothing to be done. Important, important, but I'm uh, building a statue of yesterday's match official <laughs> in, in honour. Of that late decision in our favour. Yeah, 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 yeah. A giant, a gigantic Lee Mason will soon loom over uh, North London um, for for all. What a to, sight! Yeah, exactly. What it would be. The uh, angel of the south. People will travel for miles. <laughs> oh dear. I mean, people talk about the referee, and I think both sides yesterday had reason to be in in some way critical True. of Lee Mason because he is that kind of a referee. He makes some very strange decisions. I thought the the award of a free kick to Burnley when Aaron Ramsey was shouldered in the chest or, or face area while he was in midair was one of the most remarkable refereeing decisions I've seen in a very, very long time. Definitely. I think you're right. It's easier to accuse him of incompetence than bias. I think there were mistakes on on both sides yesterday. Um, but I guess that, you know, the, the, the biggest decision of all, I think he did get right at the very least uh, and it came came very late too but a lot of referees wouldn't give that penalty I don't think I think you should, that's the sort of thing you see happen in the last minute of games and it just passes by but uh, I was pleased that he he, he had sort of a bit of, enough bottle I suppose to, to make that decision yeah I mean it was clearly a very unpopular decision for the <laughs> yeah. for the home fans and they'd been loud throughout the game hadn't they they'd been booing and singing that stupid same old Arsenal always cheating song after you know a foul would go against us or he he would give us a free kick and they would somehow deem that cheating uh, in some <laughs> way but you know I, I, it always makes my head hurt that particular chant um, but you know they they had been loud. They'd been vociferous. They'd been behind their team. They were booing and whistling. There was a period, I think, in the second half where I think we got a free kick. And it was a free kick. And it was probably somewhere around halfway. It wasn't even very dangerous. And they just spent about 60 seconds booing um, uh, non-stop. And I think I put something on Twitter about, you know, wouldn't it be brilliant if we scored an offside goal at, at this point? Um which would have made them go absolutely crazy. But actually, in reply to that, I should point this out. Dave Miles, who's at large David 71 on Twitter, uh, said in reply to my, well, an offside goal would be lovely. And he says, or maybe a last-minute pen. And lo and behold, 
That is exactly what happened. So Dave Miles, if anybody's looking for the uh, for the lottery numbers this week, he is at large. David seventy one. Hit him up there for any of your future uh, wants and needs. He'll be able to provide that. I'm sure with no with no hassle. Amazing the the Nostradamus of Twitter. But do uh, I mean we've done it before, haven't we? A last minute penalty against Burnley, ninety eighth minute, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, when you look back at the the last three games against Burnley, somebody actually has put together a very nice compilation, which is doing the rounds. I might tweet it out uh, in a while. Um, basically, it shows the last few minutes of the last three Burnley games and. You know, uh, the Koscielny the handball at, at Tur- Turf Moor last year was one thing, but you remember the home game against Burnley last year when it looked like we were going to hang on for a 1-0 win with uh, 10 men. Granite Xhaka had been sent off, of course, uh, for that foul on, on Dufour. They got themselves a penalty in the last minute. Arsene Wenger got sent off. You remember he had his his contretemps mm-hmm. with, uh, with Anthony Taylor. He said, you know, you're a disgrace to your federation or whatever it was. Uh, and he yeah. got sent off. And then, like, in the seventh minute of injury time, we get a penalty, and Alexis Sanchez scores a, a Penenka, I think it was, right down the middle. And then you look at what happened yesterday. They must fucking hate the sight of us. They must just uh, imagine three times in a row against the same team. Uh, and I, you know, I don't think yesterday's penalty was in any way contentious. I think it was a penalty. Uh, same mm. with the penalty that we got. Um, Last season, it was Koscielny got kicked in the head, if you remember. And that yeah, was a penalty as well. That. But I think there was, I think what, what boiled their piss for that one, when there was a hint of offside for Koscielny, uh, but he did get kicked in the head. Um, so the only one they can have real complaints about is, is the, the one where he kicked it off his own hand and it went in. Uh, I think they could mm. have some legitimate gripes about that, but <laughs> uh, it's hilarious. It's hil- for us, it of is. course, not for them. No, it's nice to be somebody's bogey team, isn't it? I feel like we have sort of nineteen bogey teams in this league. <laughs> there's always some, there's always some beef with somebody, but for us to be on the other end of that uh, is enjoyable. And who doesn't love a last minute winner? I must say, I was first of all a bit surprised that he gave the decision. Although I agree with you, it, it was a foul, and it was a penalty. And then when I looked and I saw that Alexandra Lacazette had been taken off, mm. it was Alexis Sanchez over it. And despite his form with that ninety eighth minute. Penenka or whatever it was I was a little bit anxious actually I didn't necessarily have complete confidence that he would score that that you do sometimes with a penalty taker so real relief when he when he hit the net and uh, yeah a great moment great result as well yeah absolutely away from home because you know it changes the narrative uh, if you like in, in many ways in many respects because you know you're looking at that game yesterday and you know for all that you might uh, praise Burnley for the way they're organised and disciplined and how well they defend. And all those things are true. They're a hard team to play against at home. It yeah. would be also uh, impossible to escape the conclusion from an Arsenal point of view that this was a poor day, a poor result. You know, particularly after uh, winning against Spurs last weekend and the high that that put everybody on, to have not won would have been a real a real downer and you know you would be very worried about the way that we play away from home because we do have issues on the road and all of a sudden everything changes with that split second decision that decision from what's his name Tarkovsky to to push Aaron Ramsey the referee awarding the penalty you know even then like you I was a bit like kind of half watching with my eyes closed because um 
Actually, I'll tell you what happened with with the penalty. I was watching uh, via a stream, obviously. Um, and what I had done was I'd stream. I was streaming it from my lap. No, my tablet to the TV. That's how I did it. Mm. Um, and the site that I was using was really quite up to date. It was there wasn't much of a delay. Uh, but when you stream to the TV, it adds another few seconds of delay. So uh, when I saw the penalty, I immediately switched over to Twitter <laughs> to have a look to see what was going on. And Twitter's a little <laughs> bit ahead. So I was watching Twitter before we took the penalty because it was just, oh, is he going to score it? And then I could see people going, goal, goal, goal. I was like, oh, <laughs> excellent. Which I don't know if that's cheating. Is that No, it's not cheating, is it? But what is it? How do you describe that? I it was don't just know. Like, I've done that myself in yeah. the past. It just sort of provides you that little bit of security. There's nothing more exciting than when the ball's in open play and you accidentally find out that there's going to be a goal and you're like, oh, <laughs> what's the next 30 seconds hold? You can enjoy it so much more, I think. Yeah. Uh, I've, I mean, I've, I've seen you do that, actually. I've seen because you've been at games and you're there yeah, yeah. and you're you're tweeting in real time and I'm maybe 20 seconds behind because I'm watching on a stream and I'm like, oh, there's a goal, brilliant, I can't wait for this now. Yeah. And you're sitting and watching the game going, I can't wait for the goal, this is going to be great. Um, I, I mean, keeper... keeper. I, I still get loads of people saying, <laughs> you've ruined that for me, sorry. So well, I do apologise. Well, look, you know, turn your Twitter off. If you're not prepared to get those updates, turn Twitter off. You know, it's not yeah, like exactly. uh, it's not like there isn't an easy solution to that, but... <laughs> you know, the keeper made a good effort at keeping it out, but you know, in yeah, it went. In and uh, yeah, look, it's uh, it's a great way to win a game. And I, I have to say, I'm going to reiterate what I wrote on the blog this morning. To me, there is absolutely nothing better than seeing the opposition players with their hands on their head in dismay, like no. You just I'm yeah. at the point now where you know the only thing that could make it better is somebody doing like Willem Dafoe in Platoon, just no. With arms in the air, <laughs> fucking being riddled with Arsenal bullets. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. I just fucking love yeah. that. Yeah. That's one of the great things about 89, of course, I guess. You get that moment <laughs> brilliantly. That's the ultimate one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I look, it's, it, the main thing about this win, I think, is when you look at the context across the other results, because Spurs dropped points, Liverpool dropped points, Chelsea you know, kind of dropped points, they drew with Liverpool at yeah. any rate. So this was a chance for us to make up some ground, mm. and it would have been really disheartening had we not managed to do that. And, you know, I mean... Back, back up into the top four, back where we belong. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, and it is, it's a big win. It's a big three points. And because of how many games are played at this time of the year, and, you know, you look at this week, there's nine points in a week, and that can make a huge difference to your position in the table uh, with regards to how healthy it looks or not healthy. You know, we had to, we really had to take the three points yesterday. And I, I get that Burnley are obstinate and, and hard to break down, but... You know, had we not got the win, I think, uh, you know, it would have it would have raised questions. It would have um, it it would have changed the mood in a significant way. But I think as well, we have to give credit to to the team for the way that they played in the second half, in particular. You know, I th- I missed the first few minutes, but from what I was seeing on Twitter, people were saying, "Oh, we haven't started particularly yeah. well." Burnley looked very good. I turned on just before the guy hit the post and it was a good save from Petr Cech. He just got fingertips on it. Um, And that seemed to suggest the momentum was very much with Burnley. But when you look at the overall game, I think we were were on top for most of that second half. And if you think about where the game was played in the second half, it was pretty much uh, all in the Burnley half. I know they came forward, they had their moments, but... 
you know, in, in terms of dominating territory, we did that and we really pushed them further and further back. And when you do that, when you have a team absolutely camped in their own box as we did have them in, in the final stages of the game, there's always the possibility that something like that will happen. A foul, a handball, you know, a misclearance, just something will crack uh, with the opposition. And I think you have, you've got to give credit to the team for, for, uh, for putting that pressure on. We didn't look really like we were going to score, but if you put that pressure on, you know, that's what can happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because the post-match fallout, like a lot of the analysis and the discussion has focused on Burnley. Like I know match of the day, you know, predominantly talked about the quality of Burnley's performance rather right. than Arsenal's. But when you when you actually break it down and look at it over the course of 90 minutes, you know, we had 64% possession. We had 17 attempts on goal as opposed to eight. You know, Arsenal really turned the screw in that second half. Burnley had a strong half hour and I like... I'm sure many people at home was watching sort of slightly, you know, through my hands thinking, oh dear, this is going to get nasty because they, they are very, very efficient. Arsene Wenger called them at home, but they're organised and they play some decent stuff. But Arsenal recovered really well and, you know, we, we probably maybe should have taken the lead in the first half. I mean, if you mm. think of that Aaron Ramsey chance, yeah. um, which was brilliantly set up, I thought, by Lacazette. He just kind of took it early. He, he missed one like that against Everton as well, I seem to recall, where he sort of took it so early, but uh, didn't quite have the composure, you know, which is uh, a bit frustrating, I guess. But we, we had a decent chance then, and then Alexis went close. And But after half-time, I thought we really seized control of the game. I thought that Arsenal players took a lot more initiative after the break. I don't know if Arsene Wenger gave them different instruction or just, you know, settled them down a bit, but that's when our quality really began to tell. All right, well, I mean, we should look at the, the team selection a bit as well. Uh, obviously, there was a there was an issue before the game. Mesut Ozil travelled with the squad, but was declared ill on the morning of the game. He travelled back to uh, to London, was replaced in the squad by Ainsley, Maitland-Niles. I mean, do you feel like we would have had a bit more to offer creatively or in the final third if Ozil had been there? Or, or were Burnley that kind of a team, or are that kind of a team where... Uh, perhaps he, he even he might struggle. Maybe I mean it's not necessarily a fixture where you could uh, where, where you which you pick for us or you know away from home at a, a ground where they are super organised, they are aggressive, they are you know competitive. I, I don't know. I mean it's we've seen him fail to perform in scenarios like that before. Um, however, I was really disappointed that he didn't make it. I mean, after the the Everton game and then not too long after that, the Spurs game, I was really hoping to see Ozil alongside Alexis and Lacazette. He really seemed to have a bit between his teeth for the derby. And I thought with all the praise that had come to him, Arsene Wenger had actually spoken about that and said that he's enjoying a bit of praise, a bit of adulation, mm. inevitably. And I was sort of, yeah, I was I was really looking forward to seeing what he could do in this game. Um, sadly, it's not to be. I feel like maybe I'm not paying attention to other clubs as much, but I feel like our players get ill quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like, it just seems strange, doesn't it? I, I don't remember that happening 10, 15 years ago, but it feels like now illness is a, a bit of a thing and a bit of a reason for absenteeism. Now. Yeah, it's true, actually. And I do uh, I do remember a number of players falling ill this season. Ozil has had a... I mean, he does look sickly at yeah. times, doesn't he? <laughs> he give you a run for your money. Um, he would. But, you know, I think Per Mertesacker missed a game this season because he woke up ill. Um, I think, was that the Man City game, wasn't it? Because we had mm. to play Francis Coquelin at, at centre-half there. Yeah, I, d I don't know. I mean, I, I do wonder if there is perhaps a, 
a new policy in place Maybe. where if somebody is feeling ill, they're immediately removed from the squad so as to prevent any illness being spread, which could yeah. be which could be uh, you know a good thing. I mean, you think back to uh, 2006, of course, the most famous bout of illness in in Premier League football history was on the final day of the season, and everyone points to a dodgy lasagna, but it was basically one Spurs player who you know had the shits and passed it on to everybody else uh, mm-hmm. by being in the same place as them. So you know maybe it's a new policy. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, Mesut Ozil's ruled out of the game on Wednesday as well. Arsene Wenger saying afterwards that, uh, you know, he won't be available for Wednesday. Again, maybe being cautious because there is that game with Manchester Manchester United at the weekend. So making sure that he's going to be fit and ready for that. Alex Iwobi came in. Uh, how did you feel he did? I mean, I, I didn't think he had a great game. I, I kind of feel like Alex Iwobi is sort of a player who... He does really excite me, actually. I think he's got huge potential, but people seem to be continually quite frustrated that he's kind of not Mesut Ozil. And I think it's only fair, really. I mean, he's he's still a young guy. He's still learning the position. He's still learning his game. And uh, I, I think the talent is there, but not necessarily always the expression. But I do think this was a difficult game for a creative player to impose themselves upon. So I'm not... I wasn't too underwhelmed with him. I just thought, you know, he kind of had a, a bit of a, an average performance. What about you? What did you make of him? Yeah, I mean, I thought he did okay at times. Maybe I was a little harsh on him in my player ratings. But, uh, you know, I think sometimes we look at individuals and don't take into account the, the the overall picture of the game. You know, I don't think you could say anybody played particularly brilliantly yesterday. You know, someone like Alexis Sanchez, for example, I think was was worse than Iwobi. Um, mm. He didn't have a great game either. But of course, when it comes to that moment where you need a big player to step up and and decide the game, he was there and he did that. So you know, he gets he gets credit for that. Um, you know, what I don't think. Uh, Iwobi will do is replace the creativity of Mesut Ozil. He's a different kind of player, isn't he? He's yeah. more a link player, gets things moving and, uh, you know, connects up your your various parts of, of the pitch, but he's not going to play the killer pass. He's not going to play that, that final ball. He was replaced by Jack Wilshire in the second half, and I'm not sure that Jack did a great deal either, did he? He was, again, sort of pulled into the, to the overall, I won't say the mire of the performance, but just became... Was there? He was there. He had a moment where he almost scored with a deflected effort, but you know, even he didn't find that pass that we were looking for because maybe that pass wasn't there against a team like Burnley. No, there wasn't, and you know, I don't think you can ever put that down to a, a lack of movement. You know, Alexandre Lacazette, he, he makes plenty of runs in the course of a game, but I thought Burnley were just very, very well organised. It was always going to take, I don't know, either something quite special or, uh, you know, a, a defensive error for us to get the breakthrough. And we, we got a defensive error right at the death. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't feel too harsh on the kind of mm. the Iwobis of, uh, I mean, Alexis, I thought had a really strange game. I thought he couldn't really, you know, there were times in the first half when he was playing passes wildly away from his target. He was really frustrated with himself at one point, wasn't he? Like kind of banging the yeah, turf. Yeah, yeah. But that's Alexis for you. I mean, you know, then is his name on the score sheet at the end of the game. Another thing I thought was interesting about our performance was I thought the wing backs uh, struggled to sort of be uh, an attacking influence in the game. Maybe in the case of Bellerin, maybe that's partly due to the absence of Ozil. You know, they combined so well 
against Spurs and then without Ozil there, Bellerin didn't really seem to get into the game in any significant way. Kolasinac, I thought, was very uh, untidy in possession. Yeah. I thought his passing was... uh, was was well off yesterday. It really was, and that's for the second game in a row. Now I know we we talked about it last week on uh, in the wake of the Spurs game how the 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 passing averages for the Arsenal side were were really low uh, in general, and yesterday they were better. You know, you could see only at ninety percent. Granite Xhaka was in around ninety uh, percent as well. Bellerin, even Iwobi, 91%. And then you have Kolasinac at um, 61.4%. Alexis, 67.8%. But you can kind of understand that to an extent. I don't mean excuse it, but understand it because he does try and uh, play a final ball or try and open up defences. He tries to to make things happen. And Mm -hmm. Kolasinac... Not so much. I mean, he did get into some good positions and didn't find the final ball. But uh, it's maybe becoming a little bit of a concern now. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's odd, isn't it? Because you see moments of real technical ability from him. Uh, You know, you think of the pirouettes and you think of when he gets into the box, his shooting, his crossing, generally very good. It just seems to be kind of the passing between the lines, the kind of build-up play where Mm. he falls a little short. It's it's something to keep an eye on. It's, It's very... It's very unvenger, isn't it? He's he's, yeah. I mean, he's quite an unvenger player in a lot of ways, um, and that's part of it. But one thing I did think watching the game yesterday is with the wing back struggling. I know we had Ainsley Maitland-Niles called up to the substitutes bench at the last minute as a replacement for Meza Özil, but those have become such important positions in our team uh, from an attacking point of view that. It is kind of frustrating, isn't it, that we don't really have any changes for those two players, Kalasinac and Bellerin, on the bench. Like, yeah. if Kalasinac isn't having a good day or Bellerin's not having a good day, there's nobody really who you can realistically bring on in those positions and hope that they'll positively influence the game. And that, that should be something I think we should really try and address as soon as possible. Come back, Oxlade Chamberlain, all is forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Yeah, it's a good point, actually, because. Um, you know, we've seen Reese Nelson and Maitland Niles play there uh, in the Europa League and, and the Carabao Cup. Whether they're ready to do that in the Premier League is another question. I'm not. I'm not so sure about that. But they are very important, and we don't have. Uh, we don't really have options. I mean, for, for the left-hand side, you know, we've got central defensive options that could come in and Monreal can move out there, I think, fairly seamlessly. So you could bring in Chambers or you could bring in Rob Holding or even Per Mertesacker. You know, if if uh, you need to do that, you've got that. But on the right-hand side, it's difficult, isn't it? You know, you, we saw Callum Chambers play there in the Europa League, and I think that was... I think that was a fitness exercise. People thought Chambers was going to play centre-half, and I think he is going to be one of the three centre-halves. He's not going to be a wing-back. I think that was designed to to really um, stretch him from a fitness point of view, give him a good hour tearing up and down the right-hand side. But he doesn't really have the pace or he doesn't really have the, uh, I guess, the the technical ability to be a threat in the attacking third. Uh, certainly Bellerin's got that. Um, you know, it's not that he couldn't improve, but he's got it more than Chambers has. So, yeah, as and when we need to rest Hector or change things, um, it's difficult to know how we're going to do that. I wonder, is that something we'll address in the transfer market in January? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think we would because if you look historically at Arsene Wenger, 
his first changes in games when we used to play different systems were often the wide men mm. um, because it, you know, I just think it's he, he felt that he could change that, that part of the field without disrupting the team too much, but also it gives you a little bit of a different attacking impetus. And these guys are effectively uh, the wingers in this system. So uh, it would be nice, wouldn't it, to be able to think, oh, it's not working out with one of them. Maybe we can shift it around and, and try something different without mm. unsettling the defence. But at the moment, that option's not available. So if we do want to do that, we've got to go out and buy somebody. Yeah. I think, you know, Maitland-Niles is a, a sort of solid enough uh, player who seems to be able to do a job at wing-back. But, you know, I don't think he's yet at the level where it's like we should be subbing him on in Premier League games where we're chasing the win. No, I mean, he could be an option if, we, if we're if we stuck from an injury point of view. And I don't think there's any reason why he couldn't play as the right wing-back either. You know, I know no. he's been deployed on the left because uh, uh, Reese Nelson's been given a go for the most part uh, on the right-hand side. But, you know, as a right-footed player, there's no reason why Maitland-Niles couldn't do that. But yeah, definitely an area that we... We need to keep an eye on, and it's, I think, a concern that people have expressed uh, more than once is that we don't really have backup for for Hector Bellerin if anything happens to him, so fingers crossed uh, in that regard. So, look, I mean, all in all, a really positive day for us. Um, You can put the performance to one side and the result on the other, and, you know, I know which side I'm going for. The result is all that matters at the end of the day, and we can uh, we can analyse, obviously, how, how it came about. But like you say, given what happened uh, to the other teams around us, we're above Spurs now, and uh, how's that for a power shift? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Lucky 13th game, and we're above Spurs. I mean, it is curious, isn't it? We're four points off Manchester United. There are a couple of games this week. We could get pretty close to them you know Mm. if results go our way and that didn't feel plausible a few weeks ago so I mean look Arsene Wenger's been saying all through this period that the league is in uh, it's still early you know it's still kind of settling into shape but I much prefer its shape right now than I did uh, a little while back yeah for sure I mean I think we've we've uh, we've had our moments this season things haven't gone quite as well as we would have liked in certain games and you know, when that happens, it is easy to fear the worst and to think that, you know, um, we're never going to turn it around. But, you know, here we are a couple of games later uh, after losing to Manchester City and we've beaten Spurs. We've beaten Burnley away from home again. Six points, uh, you know, it does throw you up the table. And um, I suppose when you look at what's coming this week, Manchester United, a discussion for uh, a different day and a different podcast. But Huddersfield at home in midweek... That's another good chance for three points. How much do you see him selecting his team with Manchester United in mind? It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, he's been alternating 11s in midweek with the Europa League and now he's got a Premier League game midweek. Will he Will he do something similar? Mm. I mean, I do think that will factor into the decision about Meza Ozil. It's telling, isn't it, when he was like, will Meza Ozil be back? For midweek, he was kind of like, no. <laughs> yeah. hey, we didn't even know the diagnosis, really, but it's like, I'm not going to risk that because United are on the horizon. I don't think it'll be the Europa League team. I think there might be one or two players who sit out, but I think it'll be it'll still be uh, pre- predominantly the strongest side. For example, that back three that have kept two clean sheets in a row, yeah. I think he'll want to keep them together because they're in a good rhythm. Uh, and I don't think he'll want to disrupt that. What, what about you? Mm, I think we might see a few changes, actually. Um, it strikes me it's the kind of game where he might do a front three with... He might give Giroud a game up front 
Um, right. You might have Welbeck in one of the wide areas. I'm not sure where else we can change it really. Midfield, perhaps, you know, will someone sit out? If Ramsey is uh, in that sort of red zone, perhaps, because he does an awful lot of running and he did an awful lot of running yesterday as well. I think you'll want a fresh Aaron Ramsey for for Manchester United. Back three again, I think uh, he'd be unwise to change that. Um, but I think we might see three or four come in. Perhaps Jack Wilshire might get a start in the Premier League. It's something he's been, uh, Arsene Wenger, I mean, has been threatening to do uh, for the for the next uh, for the last little while. So yeah, I think we'll rotate quite a bit um, because the game against United is one which is going to be uh, is much more. Uh, intense is going to be a more difficult game than than Huddersfield. I'm taking nothing for granted. Of course, Huddersfield played pretty well yesterday against Manchester City. Yeah, they did. I mean, they pushed them, you know, as hard as anybody has this season. I, I think I think there will be kind of maybe three changes to the eleven, but I think they'll be in the advanced parts of the field, like you. I think Giroud, Welbeck, uh, players like that could get a game, but I, I still I still expect we'll see Alexis play. I mean. He usually does play in the Premier League if he's mm. fit. Um, yeah. Maybe Lacazette will be will get a rest. I, you know, I know it kind of drives the fans mad. <laughs> uh, Wenger's willingness to rest Lacazette, be it from the start or from the, about the seventieth minute, but this does seem like an opportunity maybe to to do that. So. Yeah, there's something weird about the uh, about the situation, isn't there? Because Arsene Wenger is a manager who, when he needs a goal, is willing to throw on forwards all the time. We know that. We've seen him do it countless times down the years. But what seems to happen with Lacazette is he'll take him off even if we do need a goal. So you have this weird situation where he takes, he needs a goal, but he's taking off his record signing and uh, top goal scorer, I think, so far this season, uh, even though he hasn't scored for a couple of games. Um, throws on Welbeck. Of course, Welbeck, uh, he put Alexis up front, I think, yesterday, didn't he? Moved Welbeck wide and put Alexis into, into the uh, centre forward position. But, I mean, there has to be a reason for it beyond tactics, the reason why he's taking him off. I do wonder if uh, there's something physical that they're looking at. And, you know, it's hard not to think that they're they're unaware of every aspect of a player's fitness, how, how long they can run, how long they can run for, you know, how many sprints he's done. Is he going to be absolutely knackered? I mean, I think there was one moment where I thought, oh, he's really tired. There was a break, and I think Ramsey played the ball a bit too early for him. Uh, he could have made a better pass, Aaron Ramsey. But I was looking at Lacazette, and he was running like he was running through treacle. He looked knackered, and that was with about 20 minutes to go. So I yeah. do wonder if they're they're really aware of his physical capabilities, and this is why we're seeing it. I don't think uh, in any other, uh, in your right mind, would you take off a goal scorer when you need a goal? No, it would be cutting off your nose to spite your face, wouldn't it? I mean, there must be some kind of physiological evidence behind it. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily that he's nursing some kind of problem. I think that he's kind of adapting and acclimatising and essentially still being readied for the Premier League. Um, quite why he was able to get through 90 minutes in France time after time, I don't know. I guess 
maybe it is just the intensity of the competition. You know, people do talk about that. Maybe that's a very, very real thing and we're seeing the effects of that on Lacazette at the moment. Mm. All right, well, look, we'll see. Maybe he'll get 90 minutes against Manchester United and pop up with a, a last-minute winner. That would be <laughs> that would be just lovely. So uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that hopefully next Monday. But now we're going to take a break. We're, we'll uh, come back with your questions and part... What am I saying? What am I part trying two, to say? I think, isn't it? Yeah. Part two right, right after this. Yeah. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two, the part of the show where we answer the questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog, and also on the Arsblog Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog. Wow, I said that and almost only made one mistake, James. I don't know where my <laughs> where my head is. Back it's in a, the game. I'm back in the game. Exactly. Exactly. So do you want to start or will I? Uh, I'll start if you don't mind. Sure. Sure. Okay, great. This question is on the Facebook page, and it's from Rob Wiskin. And Rob says, how many wins do we need before we actually start to think we may have turned a corner? I feel my optimism getting stronger, although knowing full well a silly or crushing defeat is just around the corner. Hmm. Corners. That's the thing with corners. There's always something around them, isn't there? Sneaky bastards. As soon as you turn it, there's another one. We're just going to... It's a, it's a square that we walk around, isn't it? It's like a block. A vicious square. <laughs> the, the, the vicious square. There. We should coin that phrase. That's <laughs> boring. Um, yeah, I mean, how often? How many more wins? I don't know. I mean, look, we had a, a period last season, didn't we, where we had 19 wins or 19 games undefeated. I think at the yeah. start of the we lost to Liverpool the start of the season, then went 19 games unbeaten, and then we lost two games in a week to Man City and Everton, and everything was shit again. And um, maybe this ties into another question, which comes from uh, Clive uh, Clive Palmer, which is uh, who's at Clive PAFC, uh, and he says, as fans, do we enjoy wins enough? Has social media turned simple one nil wins into another opportunity opportunity my right to rubbish or validate opinions of fellow Arsenal people? Can't we just win? and enjoy it for what it is anymore. Um, and maybe it all it's all part of the thing. You know, um, as soon as you win, you, you've you turned a corner. You leave it behind you, don't you? And there's, there's fear and trepidation about the next the next game and, and what have you. Mm. Um, I don't you do know. Have, yeah. You do have to kind of, 
make a conscious effort almost, don't you, to be like, I'm going to enjoy this result. I mean, obviously you and I contribute to it, but we live in a, an age of constant analysis and we're always looking for the talking points yep. of any one game. And those aren't always positive. But I think part of the fan experience really is to try and focus on the result and enjoying, sometimes in, even enjoying a result in spite of the performance or enjoying it more because, you know, maybe you didn't play that well and you still got the result. I, I think that's a difficult skill to manage, but like that's what being a fan's all about, isn't it? It's savouring the moments, mm. sometimes the moments that you don't deserve as much as the ones that you do. Well, yeah, I mean, if if you if you choose, uh, you know, yesterday to absolutely focus on the performance that led up to the penalty and how we weren't creative enough and, and what have you, and you don't allow yourself to enjoy the fact that we we absolutely drove them mental by winning that game in the way yeah. we did. And look, it wasn't on us necessarily. It was, you know, the referee, he gave the penalty. We took the penalty. The boos were fucking amazing. They were, it was like, I think I said in the player ratings on Arsblog News, those boos were like the music of angels in my ear. It was a glorious <laughs> symphony. That's what I heard. I didn't hear boo. I heard like, hallelujah. It was like that to me because... You you have to enjoy that. You can't if you can't enjoy that, then just stop, because mm. football is not for you. It's not because those are the moments over the course of a season that that you you have to cherish. Because normally, at the end of a season, you're disappointed. Normally, and I know we have expectations and ambitions as Arsenal Football Club to win things and to win the title. But you know, it's whatever fourteen years since we've won the title. Uh, so that means every Premier League season ends in disappointment in one way or another. But think back to some of the ways that we've ended a Premier League season. 2006, for example, where we beat Tottenham into the Champions League places. There are other other uh, seasons where we have celebrated on the final day because we've kept Spurs out of the top four by winning you know, 1-0 at Newcastle and all that kind of stuff. There's my dog going mental. Um... <laughs> You know, you have to enjoy those moments. And if you can't, because you're so focused on what's wrong, then I, I don't know why you would even bother. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't talk about what's wrong. And like you say, we're in an age of constant analysis and constant content. Like a, a game lasts forever now or lasts until the next game you know it used to be a case you go to the game you chat about the game afterwards and that was it you know beyond having a chat with somebody in work you, you there was no way of of extending the lifespan of a match the way it is now like you think how long you know you think about the man city game for example that cast a shadow over that whole international break basically so that's mm. that's where we are i think we have to accept and, and understand that the the landscape has changed and the way that football uh, is now has has fundamentally changed, but you can't lose sight of the fact that you should have you should uh, make the most of the moments when they when they happen. I agree, and I must say, if you enjoyed those boos, um, there's a video doing the rounds. I think Tim Stillman retweeted it on his timeline, which is shot by a Burnley fan from their end behind the goal when Alexis scores that penalty and it's just them booing and flicking bees <laughs> at the Arsenal players. I must it's check that. great. I must check that out. That's absolutely, oh yeah. 
Love that. I love that. I mean, look, the same way that, you know, other fans, you know, love it when they win a game in the last minute. You know, it, it's just glorious. It's absolutely wonderful. I love it. <laughs> um, whose question is it now? I've already, um, I've already lost track. Okay, well, I, I will, um, I'll go. Uh, this is from Larry, who's at Larry Larmeau, I think. Uh, apologies if I got that wrong. And he says, if Ozil isn't ready Wednesday, which uh, I don't think he is, do you start Jack Wilshire in his place? I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe. I mean, Arsene Wenger's been intimating that Jack might have a Premier League start in him sooner rather than later. And you almost wonder if he knew this game was on the horizon when he said that, because as a rule, he's got no cause to change his first 11. You know, he can play them every weekend and they can be relatively fresh. But with United just a few days after, this is a chance to mix it up a bit, as we said in part one. The issue is, I, I mean how and where. I mean, Arsene views him as part of that front three, doesn't he? He doesn't really play him yeah. in those deeper roles. And there's actually a lot of competition there. I mean, even if you were to rest a Lacazette and, an I don't know, an Iwobi, say, you've still got Giroud, you've still got Welbeck to consider. So, I don't think he's a cert, Ozil, uh, Wilshire. Mm. But, um, I, I'm going to say, what am I going to say? I'm going to say, yeah, why not? I'm going to say, why not give him a start? I think he has just about earned it, really. I mean, he, he's not he's not set the world alight in those Europa League games, but he's he's shown flashes. He's shown enough flashes to maybe deserve the chance. Mm. So I, I'd, I'd give him a game. Would, would you throw him in? I'm working off the assumption that he's going to play Giroud, and I'm working off the assumption that he's going to play Welbeck. So then that means if you're playing Wilshire, he comes in for Alexis Sanchez. Mm. Uh, so it depends what the physical condition of Alexis Sanchez is like. Arsene Wenger, as we know, he likes to keep Alexis ticking, doesn't he? When there's yeah. games, he likes to he likes to keep him motoring, if you like. He's not a player who necessarily responds terribly well to arrest. Um, so... Do you play Wilshire ahead of Alexis? I don't think so. I wouldn't be necessarily averse to playing Wilshire a little bit deeper in midfield in his more natural position, but Arsene Wenger doesn't seem to want to do that. You know, he's spoken about him as being part of the front three, and I do wonder if he f feels like he doesn't necessarily have the legs to play in, in central midfield at this moment in time. So I'm going to say for Wednesday... I don't think Wilshire will start if Arsene Wenger makes those other changes that I think he might make to the front three. Yeah, I, I think Alexis will start on Wednesday. So I think it becomes <clears throat> about kind of Welbeck and Giroud. If they if they both play, I don't think there is room for Wilshire. But I wonder if, you know, will, will he be that bit more cautious with Danny Welbeck? He, mm. he does seem to be a little bit wary doesn't he, of using him, uh, of him having another setback, essentially. Mm. So maybe he'll just hold him back and give Wilshire an hour, give Welbeck that last half an hour before the United game. So he's a good option from the bench, potentially, on that day. Um, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I think it's probably going to be two from that three. And I think Alexis will play. All right. Uh, before you get on with the next question, just a tweet here from at uh, Eman for Arsenal, who says this. I had a strange experience on Saturday. I was in Lakeside Mall listening to last week's Arscast. I don't know where Lakeside Mall is, by the way. Where is that? Uh, Lakeside. I can't remember now. It's, uh, oh, 
Essex. Right. Anyway, he continues, in regards to Thursday's game, you said Maitland-Niles had to improve his final ball. As you said it, I looked to my left, and there he was, standing with his mates. What are the odds? Wow, we summoned him. We That's summoned, incredible. yeah. We summoned Ainsley Maitland-Niles to a shopping centre. Do our powers know no bounds? <laughs> it's, it's our greatest achievement today. Um, oh, wow. I wonder where he is right now. I wonder which listener can see Ainsley Maitland. I think every time we talk about him, someone out there listening is right next to Ainsley Maitland. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us where you've seen Ainsley Maitland Niles while you're listening to the podcast. We can make this a regular feature. One I, day I'll, just, yeah. I'll turn around and he'll be in my bedroom with me. <laughs> um, That's a, yeah, there's an image. Yeah. Um, let's have a question. Oh, this is from uh, Caleb Elks. And he asked on Twitter, I noticed some Arsenal players wearing long sleeves and others short. Does the captain no longer choose the attire? Is this a tradition lost? Um, I uh, asked about this mm. a while okay. ago. It's, it's, it's something that seems to keep cropping up, but from what I understand from the club, because I've asked about it, there has been no change. It is the captain who decides whether the players wear short sleeves or long sleeves. And the explanation I was given was that some of them pull their sleeves up uh, they they took them up if they're wearing long sleeves, um, right. and some of the short sleeve if it looks like they're wearing shorts they're wearing the 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 other tops underneath you know that way, yeah so yeah yeah that's what I've been told. Um, so possibly yeah I, yeah I I don't think there's been any change to that tradition. I think you know as uh, as captain of the club as well, Per Mertesacker is very mindful and respectful of the various traditions. Uh, that that are in place at the club. I mean, you'd have to be almost Galas-esque in your country to try and change something like that. So I don't think there's been any uh, change in the tradition, but perhaps players are just more comfortable rolling their sleeves up. Some of them like short sleeves more than long sleeves. I, I don't know. I didn't really notice it yesterday. I didn't particularly, but I thought it was because I've seen a couple of questions about it in recent weeks but maybe uh, maybe it's these tight shirts a bit misleading maybe when they're rolled up they look very convincing yeah. like short sleeve shirts I'm looking at the match here now at a clever here's Alexis Wilshire Ramsey looks like long sleeves Welbeck's wearing long sleeves uh, let me go back a bit uh, to a sort of one of those it's a fair point, actually. I can't think. I don't recall specifically seeing. I mean, it didn't feel like a short sleeves day yesterday. No, I can't. I can't see anyone who looks like they're wearing short sleeves yesterday. Uh, Lacazette looks short sleeves with a with a top underneath. That's mm. what Lacazette looked like. So maybe they're all wearing short sleeves with the kind of top underneath. I don't know. Um, yeah. Anyway, I guess we'll have to. We'll have to figure that one out at some point. Keep an eye on that one, I think. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I, I don't know how... Well, would it have any influence that Per Mertzaka is the captain, but not on the pitch? That wouldn't affect things, would it? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, yeah, no, I mean, he makes the decision, I guess, at the end of the day. It's, you know, he tells the kit man, we're going short or long, and uh, 
and we go from there. So I assume all those things are still in place, but it's clearly something people are noticing. So maybe we shall uh, try and get some clarity on that. Okay, here's, here's one from Angus Kwong, who's at Angus underscore Kwong. And he says... Um, Is there an anti-Arsenal agenda within the media? A definite penalty is described as controversial in TV programmes, and news, like Reese Nelson being dropped in the Europa League, would be exaggerated by some newspapers. And sort of in the same vein, Jonas82, who's at JoeV82, says, BBC yesterday reporting our win was controversial. Match of the day report last night left out almost every decision that fell into our advantage, bar the penalty in the end. What do you think is the reason? Uh, Is the media trying to keep us in in a bad daylight, he says, but I guess a bad spotlight. I guess to an extent they are because that's the role they kind of want us to play in the story of the season. I think that, you know, people want Arsenal to be that clown car. They want Arsenal to be that clusterfuck. That's mm. what... You know, that's kind of the that's the agenda that was set at the start of the season and that's what people expect to unfold. And I think that there there probably is a bit of a kind of determinist thing about that in the in the in the media. Um and inevitably when we do mess things up, it gets more attention. It's a bigger story. Mm. Um so yeah, I, I don't think it's kind of a bias against Arsenal necessarily. I don't think it's like, oh, we're, we're out to get Arsenal. I think it's that we've kind of become characterised as that sort of team. And generally, generally, the media find it difficult to shift categorization of a team. So, you yeah. know, and also I don't think we necessarily have done enough this season to deserve a transformation in the perception of Arsenal. You know, I don't think we've shown that kind of consistency yet. So... But I do think on a game by game basis, generally we go they go with the stereotype. Yeah, yeah. Um I mean I think every fan of every club would say that the media is biased against them in some way. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of goes back to a discussion I had on, on Friday uh, on the Arscast with Daniel Story. Uh, if people haven't listened to that, they can listen to it uh, in the archives. Um that, you know, we're so in tune with our own club and what we do uh, that any little criticism from anywhere outside of that can be taken apart. Mm. Um, I do think we are, as a fan base, though, good fodder for the media in, in certain ways because they know that Arsenal has this huge online presence, this mass of fans who react. We're not a passive fan base online, I think it would be fair to say. Um, So that when things happen, we react. And I do believe that there is an element of that within certain sections of the media that they know that if they, you know, do something that's going to wind up some Arsenal fans, you know, as we've seen, in the last like, week like, or so. Like, uh, <laughs> a North London Derby 11 yeah, for the Tottenham players. Exactly. You know, they know they're going to get a reaction. They know they are. And they court that, and I think that's fair enough. You know, um, it's a, it's part of the industry. Uh, are there, is there like a, a, a vast anti-Arsenal conspiracy within the media? I don't think so. I don't believe that's the case. I don't believe there's that kind of... Uh, what's the word, coordination between the various sections of the media. So, yeah. you know, I 
I think it's it's worth taking everything that's said about us with a pinch of salt, whether that's positive or negative. You know, you look at the predictions ahead of the cup final, you know, all the pundits said Arsenal were going to get a pasting in the in the FA Cup final from Chelsea, and we didn't, and that was very enjoyable. And you know, you can give a bit back then. So, I think we've got to we've got to take a bit of uh, take a bit of the nonsense. Some of it is just absolute shite, and I think everybody can see when it is absolute shite. Sometimes it's just an opinion that you don't necessarily agree with, but there's no reason why you should have to agree with everybody's opinion. You know, um, yeah. you can just say, "Oh, I don't agree with that." My point of view is different from yours. I, I I just don't understand the need people have to convince people of their point of view all the time. Like, you're wrong, and now I'm going to spend all day tweeting at you to convince you why you're wrong when you could just say, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't agree, but, you know, let's fucking go do something better with our lives. And, you know, so th- there's that part of it as well. People get very invested in that. And, and that, that's on both sides. You know, you can see some journalists, for example, who, who just want to argue all day on Twitter. I don't know how some of them fucking get any work done uh, <laughs> because they're just spending all day on Twitter fighting with people. And, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm happy to state my opinion. I've got a blog. I can do that every day. Uh, but if you don't agree with me, that's fine. I that's, I respect that too. Uh, but I'm not going to try and convince you the the other way. Yeah, no, it it really isn't <laughs> worth it. And the other thing to say is that some of Arsene Wenger's greatest teams, some of Arsenal's greatest teams, have not been particularly popular in the media. And actually. You know, you, you don't have to derive satisfaction necessarily from how your team is portrayed in the press. It's nice when things say nice, people say nice things about your team, but it's also it's also quite nice to have that sense of being against the national agenda, you know, mm. and, and going against that, fighting against that, striking out on your own. So, um, I wouldn't get too worried, basically, about no. it. It's ultimately it's the results. It's the results that really yeah. matter. I mean, I I really enjoyed when we were portrayed in the press as this animalistic, barbaric pack yeah. of uh, Neanderthal cavemen who would just go around clobbering people all the time. You know, Wenger's red card shame. Do you remember when it used to be like oh this? I mean, it was part of the early days of the. I won't say the foreign invasion of the Premier League, but when foreign players became much more uh, common, we had a foreign manager. That was something that was quite rare at the time. People forget that. that you know, Most of the managers in the Premier League were British, and all of a sudden, Arsene Wenger comes in and changes things, and he brings in all these French players. And, you know, uh, they didn't like that. The media definitely didn't like that. And we were easy to pick on from that point of view when Vieira got sent off. Or, you know, people people talk about Vieira. Oh, he was disgusting, you know, getting sent off for uh, spitting at Neil Ruddock, for example. It's not nice. Not spitting, spitting at people is not nice. But, you know, let's ignore the what sparked that, which was probably something racist from Neil Ruddock. Um, you know... I love that because uh, it showed that there was something about our team that was getting up people's noses, and it wasn't just that we were, it wasn't just that we were physical or overly physical or, or dirty in any way. It was because we were fucking good as well. And I think maybe, <clears throat> pardon me, you know, maybe when we're good, we become a threat, and that's when you know it's it's uh, it's easier to to have a pop. So yeah, it works both ways. It does indeed. Um, well, speaking of the media, someone who's uh, a bit of a darling of the media at the moment, we had a question from Lewis Hutchinson after another good result from Watford. He said, what are your thoughts on Marco Silva? Do you think he's someone Arsenal could look to in the future when Wenger eventually leaves? 
maybe I think they should be paying close attention to him and what he's doing. That's for sure. Um, mm. Look, he looks like he's doing a fantastic job at Watford. But, you know, as ever, I remain a bit cautious because we've seen this happen with managers down the years. And in recent times, you know, people have come into the Premier League and been fantastic and everyone's going, well, he's the next guy. He's the next going to be the next great manager. And what's been difficult for those guys is to maintain a level of consistency. Mm. And they've fallen away. You know, you can think of names, um, Brendan Rodgers, for example. Uh, Michael Loudrup. Michael Loudrup, yeah. Remember, he had that great season at Swansea and he had Michu scoring 20-odd goals and everyone's going, Michu is the, the player that we should be buying and Loudrup for manager. And I think he's gone off to doss around... Qatar or somewhere like that. I don't know where he is now. Um, but, you know, he 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 was unable to produce consistently. And, you know, there's two sides to that, right? Maybe there's only so far you can go with a team like Swansea or a team like Watford. And if you go to a bigger club with better resources, you might find it easier. You know, you've got better players. You might find it easier to produce on a consistent basis. But there's always going to be those doubts um, until you do that. I guess it's it's down to somebody to take a chance on a manager like that. And when you look around at what's happening in the managerial world and in the, the world of head coaches, it strikes me that he is the kind of candidate that Arsenal will have to really strongly consider. Um, you know, do you go out, do you bring in somebody like Ancelotti who's established, or do we do what we did when we appointed Arsene Wenger? A left field, brave decision to bring in somebody who had a lot to prove. You know, mm. Arsene Wenger had, had been a success in France, but had gone to Japan. And maybe it was a learning experience for him to go to Japan, but that's a step backwards in footballing terms. And to take a manager from the Japanese, uh, what's it called, the J-League, yeah. um, and, and bring them to the Premier League when there was no history of foreign managers or, or the only foreign manager, I think, that had come in was the guy at uh, Aston Villa, wasn't it, Dr. Wenglos? Dr. Joseph Engels. Yeah, you he know. was the only foreign manager. Previously. And, and you know, it didn't really work out for him there. Um, so that's, I think, what we're going to have to do. So you got to ask, is the club brave enough to make that decision? Are they willing to take a chance on a young manager who, who still has to properly establish himself uh, and do so in the hope that he can, he can kick on himself in his career? I mean, what, what do you think? It's, it's hard to say, isn't it? I mean, he's very much flavour of the month at the moment. I thought he did a a good job at Hull and he seems to be doing a very good job at Watford. It's really hard to know how he would, how he would thrive in, in, in a different environment. You know, Arsenal, I know he spent some time at, at Sporting and Olympiacos and those are obviously very big clubs within those. I mean, he's won clubs. leagues with those clubs, you know, so yeah. let's not downplay what he's done from, from that point of view either. It's just in Premier League terms, sure. it's, it's a different beast. Yeah, I, I, I mean, and you know, Arsenal is a, a different a club on a different scale as well. I mean, it's just a, a huge sort of uh, global entity now, Arsenal. But yeah, I, look, I think when you talk about your Ancelotti's of the world, I, I can't see Arsenal fans getting too excited about that. To be honest, I think you know, someone who's a an older pair of hands, I, I just think that the the fans would be really energised by a young appointment, someone with their career ahead of them and mm. someone with a, a bit of energy and, and drive. I do think that might might be what's required to kind of invigorate the supporters. So in that instance, I think he's got to be one of the names on the list. I mean, all you can hope really is if we are in the final two years of Arsene Wenger's reign that we're not 
ignoring the problem and that, you know, there are candidates being very closely observed, you know, in the same way that we hear that we do about player transfers, Mm. you know, background checks, you know, speaking to people around them, finding out more about them. You know, I I hope that that process is happening at some degree with the managers because otherwise we're going to end up in a situation in May 2019 where we don't know what we're doing. Mm. Okay, here's a question from John Strobel, who is at Hoosier Gooner, Hoosier underscore Gooner. He says, has your opinion on Mustafi changed? And I think I had another one here. Boom, 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 boom. I did have, but I can't find it. Oh, no, here it is from Chris Rowe at Bilko08. And he says, with the opinion people had of Koscielny's consistency early on and people's opinion of him now, could you see a similar path for Mustafi? I have to say, I've been really impressed by Mustafi in the last couple of games and Mm. a a little bit surprised, to be honest. I mean, he looks much more composed, I think, than than he had previously. And there is a kind of maturity about his performances. Maybe it's just that the transfer window is long shut and he's a bit more settled because, you know, there did seem to be genuine uncertainty about if he'd mm. remain at the club, but there's a, there's a lot more conviction in his game now. And I was never really even convinced he should be the guy at the centre of that back three. Sometimes I looked at it and thought, well, why not have Koscielny there and put Mustafi in one of the wide positions because, you know, he's played fullback before. But yeah, I wouldn't say I've completely flip-flopped on him. I still have some reservations, but he's definitely going the right way about things. And the back three in the past couple of Premier League games have been really excellent. Yeah, yeah, they have. Arsene Wenger paid tribute to them after the the Burnley game and said they were a key part of, of how we performed. And certainly against uh, Tottenham, they were outstanding. And Mustafi, I think, was, uh, was brilliant that day. That was his, easily for me, his best performance since he joined the club. And I think, yeah, you're right. Since he's come back from that injury, there has been a bit more uh, focus from him. His performances seem more mature. He's not going to ground as much. And that was always a worry that I had about him, that there was a recklessness to the way he defended that. I think in some ways the comparison to Koscielny is not unreasonable because there was an element of that to to the way he played in the early uh, part of his Arsenal career and obviously matured into a a fantastic uh, central defender for us. So, yeah, if he could follow that path, that'd be great. I mean, he's been brilliant the last two games, and if he can keep on that trajectory, then, then, yeah, great. I'd be more than happy to eat humble pie when it comes to to Mustafi. Um, There was something else I was going to say about him there, and I can't remember for the life of me what it was. Uh... (laughs) God damn, I'm having a nightmare today. Um. <laughs> no, I, I, I think he, look, I mean, he, I think his passing's been a little bit more circumspect. I think he's been very physical, mm. but in a very positive way. Um, I don't think he's overcommitted. Uh, I mean, Burnley can be a tricky place to go. You know, they're, they're not afraid of hitting an early ball. Yeah. Um, they're very good in the air. And I think, and they're good on set pieces, and we resisted that well, and he's been a big part of that. And clearly what Arsene likes about him is that he views him as an organiser. You know, he, he talks about him as being comparable to Mertzacker in that respect. Um, I, it is fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I was thinking back and thinking of the North London derby, two goals, Mustafi and Alexis, very, very nearly the case that neither player was here this season, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what I was going to say, I remembered. He seems like a good character as well yeah. within the squad. 
he seems like a good character. He gave a good interview after the derby on TV along with, with Ozil. And I think he, he spoke to the media, didn't he, about like talking shit. <laughs> he was fairly upfront about he what he said. He doesn't say any prisoners. No. no, he doesn't. And I, you know, I think that's, that's a positive thing. You do need players with character. You know, sometimes I, I find it or have found it a little bit difficult where he turns around and goes mad when um, pointing and shouting, gesturing at things when it's actually been his fault. But, you know, the I guess. The Flamini approach. The, yeah. the Flamini approach. Yeah. But the last two games have been really promising, really encouraging. And if he can keep it up, then, you know, uh, that back three looks a really, Really, really good unit at this moment in time. I think I saw a stat that says in the five games, where did I see it? I'm going to try and find it because I think it was on Reddit, the the uh, the Arsenal Reddit. Bum, bum, bum. Okay, here's one stat, which is with Mustafi this season, seven games, one goal conceded. Without Mustafi, six games, 15 goals conceded. Uh, and I'm always a bit dubious about those uh, those kind of stats, you know, which uh, which pin so much on one player. But I yeah. think this oh, I can't find it here. There is a stat about that back three, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, it's when the three of the three of them have played. They've played together five times, I think, and we haven't been beaten in those games. Um, so, you know, their opposition haven't even had a shot. They haven't even had a shot. In fact, they've never even been allowed to kick the ball. I'll tell you what it is. It's, uh, it's, uh, five games played, eight games, eight goals scored from the team. That's not really relevant, but zero goals conceded. Right. Five games with Mustafi, Koscielny and Montreal, zero goals conceded. That's pretty good. And, you know, it's not all down to them as well. I mean, I think we have to we have to give some credit in the last little while to Petr Cech, who I think yeah. has, has put in some good performances and made some very important saves as well. So th- there is something happening there. There's something really positive from a defensive point of view. And, uh, you know, we're not renowned for our defensive solidity. That's not the, the first thing that people would think of when they think about Arsenal. But if we can build that good back three... Um, then yeah, great. It's uh, it's uh, it's having an effect on results and a positive effect on that uh, at that. Yeah, I thought Chet was really good yesterday. Actually, I have to say that's that was a brilliant save uh, onto the near post and uh, from the Icelandic fellow. I forget his name. It good, ends in good, Sun though. Goodmanson. That's right. And uh, there was another one. Was it Ashley Barnes at the far post? Got a header and he sort of did well to kind of cut it out. Mm. But yeah, that back three, I mean, the five games as well that you're looking at there. Okay, Bournemouth and West Brom, those are relatively uh, comfortable home games. You would expect us to have a chance of keeping a clean sheet in those. But the other three, you're looking at Burnley away. Very, very tough place to go. Uh, The Spurs game at home and then Stamford Bridge too. Yeah. Some pretty impressive results from that trio and let's hope they can all stay fit and keep playing together. Mm. All right. I think we've got time for one more quick one if you've got one. Have I got one? That's the question. (laughs) Have you got one? Uh, Let me have a look. Uh, I think we've covered everything that I had, I'm afraid to say. Okay, well, here's one final one then from John Foster at John L. Foster. And he says, why does the same old Arsenal always cheating chant follow good Arsenal play or a terrible opposition foul? He wants to know, is it tactical mind games, a cool sense of irony, or a simple inability to see what's in front of your stupid face? (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely the third of those options, isn't it? I mean, I I don't think there's anything... uh, 
mind gamesy about it unless there's an attempt to influence the referee but i can't believe they think that that will necessarily pay dividends i just think it's mad bias isn't it but it, it doesn't make any sense because no. <laughs> they chart it at all the wrong times yeah if they did it when we were actually cheating that would be something sure but they sure. don't so it must be that they're really you know stupid i mean it's kind of stupid right yeah. i mean it, it's not cheating to be to be better to score a goal or to... Or to get kicked. Or to be fouled. That's Is not that cheating? That's not cheating. No, unless, unless you know, the Arsenal players have some kind of ability to, like we can with Ainsley Maitland-Niles, summon him to shopping centres to Jedi mind trick the opposition players into fouling them. When they were actually going to make a clean tackle and take the ball, the Arsenal players use their their mind powers to, to, uh, to make them foul them, to just put them off by that tiny little bit. So if that's cheating, fine, fine, we accept it. But I don't think, I don't think it is that. The other thing that's weird about it is that it sort of implies the Burnley fans think that their players never commit any fouls. That any free kick given <laughs> is a consequence of cheating by the opposition. Their players are like these angels. Like you know, I support Arsenal. Sometimes our players foul people. I accept that. <gasps> how I dare know. you? How dare Burn, you? The Burnley fans aren't having it. Typical by the way, how much journalist. did you enjoy? <laughs> Um, in the light of his sending off, ridiculous sending off, it's worth saying, I guess, uh, last season against Burnley, Granit Xhaka produced one absolutely outstanding clean slide tackle inside his own uh, half yesterday. Did you notice that one? I, I did notice it. I tweeted about it and I was laughing that Lee Mason didn't send him off and people were going, yeah. why? That's a perfectly good tackle. I was going, well, that's kind of the whole point. Um, yeah. It was a great tackle, actually, a good slide, but I have to say... When I when I saw Lee Mason play on, I was like, w- "What? <laughs> <laughs> this is this is not what happens when Granit Xhaka makes a good tackle. Normally same, he's sent off. Same old Arsenal, always cheating, eh? <laughs> exactly, cheating bastard with his long legs sliding in and taking the ball perfectly. What a yeah. cheating fucker! All right, um, well look, we'll leave it there. We do have midweek action, of course. Huddersfield at home on Wednesday. We'll cover that. Uh, and a look ahead to the Manchester United game uh, at the weekend on the Arsecast on Friday. Um, so until then, thank you as ever for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.